And Jeremy, beautiful. You know, I was just thinking this past week of how God has blessed this church with an inordinate percentage of people with artistic gifts. It's amazing how many visual artists we have in the church, those who can paint things that the rest of us would never even begin to attempt. We have such a wonderful high percentage of not just musicians, but excellent musicians that God has given us as a church. Aren't we blessed to have these kinds of gifts? I especially want to thank the ones who served with us on Holy Week, Hallett, Tom, Ginger, Abigail, for their nights of providing instrumental music for our service. Wasn't it a blessing to hear them? I think they ought to make a CD, but not till Larry makes his. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking, the, the uh, musicians were asking, how long have we been doing this? So I looked back and noticed our first year was 1997. That year, Larry and I did it, just the two of us. And then I think a year or so later, we asked the strings to join us, and it evolved, and, and now we use exclusively the strings because that seems to fit more the mood of the evening. What a blessing it is to have willing folk eager to use the talents and gifts God has given them to his glory. Also, thank you who last week moved chairs to help us get things together. Just a wonderful thing to see the way this body functions as a family. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also I received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This morning I want to bring a word that I feel is needed in the particular season in which we're living. If you watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, if you read many articles and books that are being moving about today in the popular literature circle, you will find challenges after challenges after challenge concerning the veracity of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, whether or not we can trust the resurrection, did it really happen, and after all, what difference does it make? One very popular author has said, well, if none of these facts were true, what difference would it make? We would still be living the moral Christian life. In other words, that's reducing Christianity to a life rather than a belief. The life we lead and the life we live must grow out of what we believe. And that's why Paul said, by which you are also saved, 
if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Lose that faith, you've lost salvation, regardless of how moral the life might be that you lead. So this morning I want to talk about certainties about the resurrection. In the early days of the church, there were no New Testament scriptures. Paul wrote the first documents that are in our New Testament. Most think the first that he wrote was 1 Thessalonians. Some argue for Galatians. But whether that be true or not, uh, that was an early writing. The four Gospels were written between 50 and 70 A.D. The last Gospel of John was written, uh, the first three Gospels were written between 50 and 70 A.D. And John written between 95 and 100 A.D. But think about what life must have been like before that. You couldn't say to some Christian, now you need to get into the Word of God. They didn't have it. And so it depended upon the teaching that came from those who had actually witnessed the events, who had received from Jesus Christ His message, and they spoke the Word. Early on, they developed something called the rule of faith. The rule of faith were the essential doctrines that were stated in four or five lines that everyone said, yes, this is what I believe. And that's what makes me a Christian. Paul recited one of these in the verse that we just read. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Point number two, He was buried. Point number three, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That was the early rule of faith. People recited, I believe this, before they were immersed into Jesus Christ. These essential facts. And that's what Paul was presenting to these Corinthians. This is what I delivered to you. This is what I received. I'm passing on. If you believe these things, you're saved. If you don't, then you have initially believed in vain. Paul received this from those who were older in the faith than he was. Passed it on, of course, He had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so for him it was more than just words. I don't know how many of you have read writings of Lee Strobel. I know some of you have. In an investigative volume Lee Strobel wrote in the case for the Christ, he cites a very famous study that was conducted by an Oxford University classical scholar, A.N. Sherwin-White. Sherwin-White meticulously examined the rate at which a legend developed in the ancient world. And he concluded that it took more than two generations for a legend to develop and for the legend to wipe out the solid core of historical truth. Two generations. But consider the creed that we just read that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. That didn't develop in two generations. As a matter of fact, it was probably being used within five years after Jesus Christ was resurrected. This morning, we want to talk about the certainties that surround the resurrection. First, the, the certainty of his death. On Friday night, as we talked about the death of Jesus upon the cross, we talked about the severity of what he went through in the whipping and how many people actually died during a Roman scourging as their body was torn by the lash and the sharp bones that were in the whip. 
Jesus didn't die, but his life really hung on by a thread. And how he carried the cross to Calvary. And there the agonizing experience that he went through. The horrible experience of the crucifixion. But the Jewish leaders said, according to our law, we cannot have a man hanging on a cross over a holy day. So therefore, rather than allowing these men to hang on the cross and spend several days dying, we have to have them killed and off the cross before sunset. And the way they killed people who were upon the cross was to break their legs. As a child, I used to read about the men went forth and broke the legs upon those who were hanging on the cross, and it killed them. I thought, how can that kill somebody? I know people have had broken legs. It didn't kill them. Well, the answer is this. When you're hanging on a cross, you cannot breathe. And the only way you can breathe is with your legs to push your body up and take a breath and sag again. And push your body up and take a breath and sag again. And so to kill someone, you take a sledgehammer and break his legs and he no longer can push himself up to breathe. And so when the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of Jesus and those crucified on either side of him. They broke the legs of the other two, but not Jesus, because they said, he is already dead. These men were acquainted with killing people. They knew when someone was dead and when someone wasn't. But just to make certain, they took a spear and thrust it into his right side between the ribs and pierced his lungs and pierced his heart, and out of that wound flowed blood and the fluid that had developed around the heart and the lungs. Jesus was dead. Not only the testimony of Scripture, but the testimony of both Roman and Jewish authorities declare that he was killed. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, wrote that Jesus was crucified on the orders of Pilate. Tacitus, the Roman official, writing in 115, described Jesus who was killed by Pilate. And not only that, the Jewish Talmud has the same thing. There are other sources as well. So not only do we depend upon the Bible, some people will say, well, the thing we're questioning is the Bible. But there are many other sources beside the Bible that state that Jesus Christ was killed by Pilate. He was dead. We can declare this morning the certainty of Jesus' death. Secondly, we can declare the certainty of the security of the tomb. You remember when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Jewish leader, and Nicodemus, who was a part of the inner ruling circle, who was a believer, somewhat of a secret believer, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Pilate and said, let us have the body of Jesus. And the body was surrendered to them. And they took that body to the tomb of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. He was going to give his tomb to Jesus. Now, this tomb consisted of a cave. And then in the walls of the cave, there were 
carved out loculi. Loculi is a, a chamber so you can put a body into it, much as you would put a drawer into a filing cabinet. When Jesus died, because it was drawing nigh of the Sabbath day, they did not adequately prepare his body for burial. They quickly wrapped it in a temporary shroud, took it into that cave, and in the antechamber there was a stone bench, and they put the body of Jesus on the stone bench. The Jewish authorities said, we have to make sure no one comes to steal his body, and so Pilate had a large stone rolled in front of that mouth of that cave. He put his own seal on it, which meant that bands, usually metal or sometimes merely leather, were stretched across to the other side and the Roman seal placed on it. Don't you dare break these bands or cut these cords because the wrath of Rome will be on you if you do. And then furthermore, he assigned Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. They wanted to make certain that no one stole the body of Jesus. No one could have dared. Even if they could have dared, they could not have done it. The body could not have been stolen. Now there was a theory that was put forth in the early 1900s and it's resurfacing again. That theory is that Jesus just swooned on the cross. And while he was in the tomb, the coolness of that cave began to revive him and he came out of his swoon. But I ask you if that's true, how could this man who had been through so much wake up in the dark and have the strength to roll away the stone? And what about the soldiers? The tomb was secure. Jesus was dead. We can also speak of the certainty of the resurrection because of the testimony of many witnesses. Let's go back to where we left off the account Friday night. You were here, remember, as we talked about what the different disciples and believers did. After Jesus was crucified on the cross, His disciples, His followers were bewildered. They were filled with mourning. Thomas, who seems to have been somewhat of an introvert, loner, went off by himself. No one knows where Thomas went. But Thomas went somewhere by himself to deal with what was going on in his emotions. Peter and John, they went off together to an apartment in Jerusalem, probably in the northwest quadrant. The other eight, as well as the women, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, the wife of Zebedee, the others who traveled with Christ, they went to Bethany, to the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. This home had been the headquarters of Jesus and his disciples when they were in Jerusalem. So eight disciples and the women were in Bethany. Thomas, we don't know where he was. Peter and John in an apartment in the northwestern part of Jerusalem. And there they spent Friday night, and there they spent Saturday. There they spent... Saturday night, and then on the first day of the week, the women said we must go do something about the body of Jesus to reverently and properly prepare it for burial. So early Sunday morning, before dawn, a gaggle of women left Bethany and started the walk to Jerusalem. 
Now between the time they left Bethany and before they arrived at the tomb, a dramatic thing happened. Matthew 28, 2. Behold, a severe earthquake occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it in spite of the Roman seal. Matthew 28, 4. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. As soon as these soldiers recovered from their swoon, they rushed to the high priest to report what had happened. There was an earthquake. The stone rolled away. We saw a heavenly being. The high priest and Jewish leaders said, Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) They gave them a large sum of money and said, We will pay you to go tell this story that his disciples came and stole the body. That's an absurd tale because the rule in the Roman army was if you lost a prisoner, if you lost a charge, you were executed. But the high priest said, Take this money, go spread this tale, and we will make it right with Pilate. Probably Pilate got a little bribe too. So you will not be executed. And so they began to spread this tale. Not long after the soldiers left the tomb, the women coming from Bethany came to the eastern side of Jerusalem. They would have walked north come around the north side of the wall until they came to Golgotha, which was located uh, north and a bit to the western part of the city. That's where both the crucifixion and the burial took place. When they got there, they were wondering, what are we going to do about that stone? (laughs) It's interesting in Scripture, they never ask the question, what are we going to do about the soldiers and the seal? But who's going to roll away that stone for us? We can't do it. To their surprise, when they arrived, the stone was rolled away and the soldiers were gone. (laughs) Mary Magdalene impulsively, immediately left the tomb and began to rush toward the Joppa Gate, which was at just about the middle of the western side of the city go into the Joppa gate and there find Peter and John and tell them, we came to the tomb. The stones rolled away. The tomb is empty. (laughs) Now while Mary was on her mission and coming to Peter and John, the other women had a more leisurely examination. They were perplexed. What's happened? And as they were examining the tomb and looking around and wondering what had happened, two angels appeared in dazzling garments and told them that Jesus had been resurrected. And the angel said, go tell the disciples. The women immediately left the tomb, traveled around that northern side of Jerusalem heading east and began making their journey back to Bethany. Well, after Mary 
found Peter and John in their apartment and excitedly told them what she had found, what she had seen. They rushed out of their apartment and as fast as they could ran toward the tomb. Mary, weary from having already run one way, running back, couldn't keep up with them, and they got way ahead of her. And as they got to the tomb, John being younger than Peter, that's one reason probably, outran him. And he got there first, and as soon as he got there, he stopped and peered in. Peter, coming along behind his impetuous self, didn't stop and stoop, he just stooped and ran on in. Mary, still far behind, panting. We can imagine what her jog was like, having gone through what she had already gone through. When they arrived, they began to examine the tomb. By now the angels had departed, and after examining the tomb, they leave and head off to Bethany to join the other disciples. Meanwhile, Mary, now exhausted, (laughs) arrives at the tomb. Her eyes are filled with tears. She stoops and looks in, and there is an angel. She is vaguely aware then of someone standing behind her and she halfway turns, her eyes filled with tears and without really looking at the individual, thinking he is the gardener, she said, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where he is. (laughs) Show me and I will take him away. Sir, if you have taken away, tell me where he moved him, and I will take him away. This person behind her was Jesus, and he spoke her name, Mary. She recognized the voice. She turned and looked at him full face. Rabbi, Jesus said, go tell the disciples that he had risen from the dead and that he was going to ascend to the Father. Mary immediately grabbed him at first and Jesus said, don't detain me. I'm going to ascend to the Father. So Mary, as the others had done, traveled around the northern side of Jerusalem and began that eastward journey to Bethany, to join the others. Meanwhile, the women traveling to Bethany were getting close. They were almost there when suddenly Jesus appeared on the path right in front of them. They fell at his feet, began to cling to his feet, began to worship him, and he said, Go tell my disciples that I've risen from the dead, and I will meet them in Galilee. Now, that he did that later, but in the meantime, he surprised them with other visits. Now, when the women arrived, they got into, got into the home. They told the disciples everything that had happened. Shortly after that, Peter and John came in, and they started talking about what their experience had been, and here came Mary talking about what her experience had been. The the room was a buzz. You can just imagine what that conversation might have been like as these various ones entered and told of their different experiences. Sometime in the afternoon, we don't know when, 
Jesus also appeared to Peter. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when nor the spot, but that he did also, in a special way, appear to Peter. Now, there were two men in the room. We don't really know who they were, exactly what their business was, but they were disciples, and they were in the room. There was some pressing business that made them have to leave and head to Emmaus. And so they traveled back to Bethany Road, but this time they went straight through Jerusalem. There was no reason for them to go around it. They passed through Jerusalem, came out on the other side, and about seven and a half miles away was Emmaus, which was their destination. And they were walking along, talking about what everybody had said back in that, that room in Bethany, and suddenly a stranger began walking along with them. And they began talking about the events of the day. He began to discuss Scripture with them and talk about the prophecies about the Messiah. When they arrived at Emmaus, they sat down to eat and said, Join us for dinner. Jesus prayed over the food and suddenly they realized who he was. They had seen the resurrected Lord. And even though by now it was dark, they began to hot-foot it back to Bethany. By the time they got there, the disciples had left the 11. Remember, there were only 11 now because Judas had betrayed him. The 11 now had gone back to Jerusalem to an upper room, probably where Peter and John had been staying, probably the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. We don't know for certain, but that is probable. And so they were in the room. They had the door locked because they were afraid of the Jews. And suddenly... Without opening the door, Jesus appeared in their midst. And here he was. Even though his body was resurrected, the wounds were still visible. The wounds in his hand, the wounds in his side. He said, look, examine me. I'm here. And in addition to that, he had a brief meal with them. He ate a piece of broiled fish, which he ate in front of them. They could not doubt Jesus was alive. This is the very last appearance of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. But a week later, the disciples were back in that room. Now, Thomas had not been in the upper room. I was in error a minute ago when I said 11. There were only 10. Thomas wasn't with them. So... Thomas had not been with them on that first event, and then they found Thomas, or he joined them. We don't know, but they began talking about their experiences. Thomas said, I don't believe it. <laughs> this just can't be. Now, sometimes people speak poorly of Thomas, doubting Thomas. I admire Thomas, because here is a man who wasn't going to be faked out by anybody. But neither was he a man devoted to doubt. And there's a real difference. There are people in the world today who are devoted to doubt. And they're on a doubt crusade. And they want to doubt. And they'll do everything they can to, to spread doubt. That's sinful doubt. But an honest doubter says there's enough baloney out there in the world. There's enough foolishness going on in churches, you know, I want the real thing. That was Thomas's heart. And he said, unless I can put my finger in the hand's wounds, unless I can put my hand in the wounds of his side, I can't believe that. 
A week later, of course, as they were in the upper room and Thomas was with them and Jesus appeared, he said, Thomas, do it. (laughs) And Thomas fell before him, believing, my Lord and my God. Many other appearances took place over the next 40 days. Let's talk about the importance of that. Remember, Paul said at one time he appeared to more than 500 people and some of those who were in that group are still alive today. Now, that's a risky statement to make if you're telling a lie, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, who are these people? I want to ask them. The mere fact he made that statement in itself is very strong evidence. But here's another one. Think about what happened from this point on. You remember John writing in 1 John said, I saw him. We heard him. We handled him. (laughs) And the Greek word therefore handled in 1 John is the word that is used to describe a person who is sightless who would put their hands on a person's face to say, let's see who you really are. Oh, yes, I recognize you. That's the word that's used. They handled Jesus, he says. It was real. And so for every one of them, from that point on, life became both blessed but horribly difficult. They were imprisoned. They were whipped. They were stoned. Remember one time Paul was stoned, left for dead, but he wasn't. And every single one of them, except John, was martyred. John died an old man in Ephesus. Would anyone embark on a life like that (laughs) because of a lie? Surely not. Let me pause and make an aside comment on the crown of thorns. In the Greek text, this crown of thorns is called a stephanos. A stephanos is a wreath that in the Greek and Roman games was placed upon the head of the victor. The man who won the race, the man who won the fight, didn't get a loving cup or something like that as we give today, but he was given a stephanos, usually a laurel wreath that was placed upon his head, showing that he was the winner, the victor. Stephanos is the word that is used in the Greek text of the New Testament for the crown of thorns. It is a stephanos of thorns that was placed upon the head of Jesus. But there is another word for crown, and that word is diadem. And that's the crown that a ruler or a king wears. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, we have a picture of Jesus. Not just as the victor, but as the conquering king 
And the Greek in that passage says diadem. Matter of fact, many, it says. <laughs> many diadems. The victor, the Lord. You know, we could come to the place to say, okay, it all happened, so what? You know, does it really make any difference? Maybe the cross does. The cross took away my sin, but what difference does this resurrection stuff mean? Embodied spirits, probably not omnipresent as they are. Jesus, however, is not like the Father and the Holy Spirit and he has not been like the Father and the Holy Spirit since the virgin gave birth. He has a body, glorified body, but he has a body. The day will come when the dead will no longer be spirits, disembodied, but once again be embodied spirits. The passage Bill read this morning, this immortality that we now have which dies and is put in the grave, but the day will come and we'll be given an immortal body. Paul also called it a glorified body. And John, remember, writing about the coming of Jesus, said, My brothers, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but this we know that when he comes, we will be like him. The song today reflected that, didn't it? We shall be like him. The glorified body of Jesus will be as our glorified bodies will be as his. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Haven't seen it yet. Matter of fact, logically it makes no sense. <laughs> but it will be. We human beings are earth creatures. God created heaven and earth, he created the earth, and the earth is our home, and the earth was really created for humanity. We are earth creatures. We, we were made from the dust, Adam from the dust. We have not been created by God to spend eternity wafting around among the celestial planets. But Peter says the day will come when there will be a tremendous conflagration all the elements will be melted with fervent heat by the way we who are believers won't be sitting around here while that happens Jesus will have taken us out of the world and there will be created a new heaven and a new earth as Peter says wherein dwelleth righteousness isn't this a horrible world we live in right now just a terrible cruelty that is everywhere. Things like happened in Haiti. Think just a few years ago, the, the unbelievable horror that happened in Rwanda. We can't put our minds around the horror and evil in the world. Bosses that are mean to us. <laughs> Wives and husbands that are cantankerous with their spouses. Misbehaving children, cruel parents. We live in a very horribly unfair world. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can look forward 
and this is not an exaggeration, to a perfect world, (laughs) wherein dwelleth righteousness. Jesus paid the price for our sins and then proved victorious over death, which is the physical consequence of sin. And because of that, we can look forward to an eternity in a perfect world, loving one another, loving God, where righteousness dwells, evil is absent. There are no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, Revelation chapter 21. Because Jesus Christ is victor. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he wears not one diadem but many. Praise his name. Father, we thank you for the victory that has been won for us. But not only do we thank you for that future world which you have for us, but that in this present world, O God, we never walk alone. We are thankful that with the psalmist we can say, Thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thank you for your presence with us in time of joy, time of sorrow, time of shame even, and time of elation. Thank you for your love that has been extended to us through the work done through Jesus. Amen.